When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show of what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Recording on Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Rebecca, how are you? Hey, I am good. Listening to you say it was June made my brain do a little like, oh, it is. But <laughs> it is June. <laughs> Memorial Day weekend, you go from mid-May mid to June, like all of a sudden. And June is one of the months, like September, like January, has, an, has a disjunctive difference in just being one day on the cal calendar different in my mind. Um, we're, we have a special episode today. We're gonna, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but I got some header material first. One. Uh, yesterday, Tuesday, I don't know. Coming up soon in our podcast feed for insiders. If you subscribe to Book Riot Insiders, we, there's a dedicated podcast feed only for uh, subscribers called Remixed, um, where we have hosts from various shows in different combinations talk about stuff. I was up, Trisha and I, <gasps> Trisha, who's on our Win and Romance podcast, we're, we're paired up this month. That's a fun pairing. And we talked about how to make the Oscars of books for an oh. hour. And we went through all the things that what would work, what we try, what not. So I think if you like this show, you would like that episode. So if you are subscribed to Insiders, you might want to check that out. And if you aren't, maybe now's a good time to go well, try it out. You can try it out for free for two weeks anyway. So that's right. Yeah, go, insiders, go listen to the episode and bounce out yeah. if you need to. But that's where that show is at. Insiders.bookriot.com. Really that does sound really fun. I love doing those remixed episodes. Yeah. Uh, Trisha spent some time reviewing reviewing movies, and that's how we kind of came to it. It's like, mm. what are we going to talk about? And um, her expertise in romance was interesting because we talked about, you know, kind of the book the book world problem of people tend to read more in their lanes than move, movies are more general purpose, and you know, yeah. you, you can reasonably see the the ten nominations for best picture. It's a much bigger ask to do that for books, but also like. It's just a different thing. And so it, it was fun to talk about. I think the answer would be, I would not fund this project. <laughs> you know, if I'm sitting around at Peacock Plus or whatever, uh, even in these days of stupid money spending, I don't think I would spend money on the book Oscars. But right. it was it was fun to talk about why not and what you would do if you had to and things like that. So you can go check that out. Um, the other thing on the top of the show to mention real quick is that I was roundly defeated in our summer <laughs> Movie draft, um, <laughs> I'd say by a two to one margin, something I'll along those lines. I'll take it. I stopped counting. Uh, I mercy ruled myself. Show title. Um, there. Uh, it uh, looked like. Go ahead. It's satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there you go. Uh, I, there wasn't. I think. Malibu Rising did a lot of heavy, heavy lifting for you. So some people, some people just said Rebecca or Jeff, mm -hmm. though much more of them said just Rebecca than just Jeff because that's what the results turned out to be. But some people kind of walked us through their thinking, which I really appreciated. And there was a lot of Malibu Rising mentions for you. Um, I, I think 
my if I if I had to do it over again, I would think more about what people are interested in for the summer versus mm. just sort of a generic ten. Um, so was, that's that's a different that's a different kind of thing. But yeah, it is a different. I'm not sour great things. I'm just thinking about what people said in terms of what they wanted. That big I thought that point. your using print runs as a measure of like predicted interest was a smart mm. and interesting approach there. And I'm not going to lie; it's one that I'll probably incorporate when we That's do right. our it's selections. It's a little bit of a money ball, right? Just because yeah. the A's didn't win the World Series didn't mean they learned something. Along right? The way. It'll so be useful for the fall. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do feel validated that my instinct of like that summer is a particular kind of reading. Yeah, um, was useful. I'm still mad that you got both somebody's daughter and the ugly cry, though. I'll See, be mad about that for I, a long time. I think time. ultimately. Your madness about that is telling about us, but I think people aren't looking for somebody's daughter, the ugly cry for summer. I mean, that's we're going to get into this in a minute because of our special topic today. People for the summer, they want Malibu Rising. They want mm -hmm. one last stop. You know, They want some of the other stuff going in there. I also think there's something to be said. I like the print run thing. There's a difference, though, I think, between a trailing print run reason and a leading print run reason, yes. right? So something like the... It wasn't on here, but the Maidens which is the Alex Michaelides, oh, right, Michaelides yeah. book, mm -hmm. that is in response to The Silent Patient being super popular, where somebody's daughter, 300,000 print run, that's an anticipation of it being a thing. Mm -hmm. Also, the other black girl, frankly, which I think people in the book world know, but people out in the, the regular reading world don't know those names yet because they weren't out, right? right? So those are anticipatory print runs, and I think that might be different if you're trying to gauge, if you're trying to get votes for this, a 500,000 print run that is the echo boom of something else is going to get you more votes than a, mm -hmm. a 500,000 print run in anticipation of something else. Though those are rare, they are out there. So your Kristen Hanna's votes, mm -hmm. Taylor Jenkins Reid, her yep. debut novel, Malibu Rising, here coming out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use like, that bit. I love that bit. I'm so I know. thrilled by it. It's the, uh, the book version of every birthday being your 29th. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. That's right. You know what? Every day someone's born that hasn't seen the Flintstones. So you never, you don't know. It could be the first time you're coming to Taylor Jenkins Reid. Well, I um, look forward to next summer when we can be like, there's this new author yeah. coming out. Her name's Taylor Jenkins Reid. I, I will say the people that were having some fun with me while voting for Rebecca, <laughs> I see you. I appreciate what is, you. What does that look like? Well, there was a little bit of, you know, Jeff, even though, and I, you know, it's, I'm going to assume the things that were rubbing my face in a little bit were supposed to be in good fun. So it's hard to tell in text. But a little bit of being a little glad to vote for Rebecca was thrown in there. Maybe maybe even more glad to say they weren't voting for me because now people know I checked well, the emails and I'm going to see it. So And you know, it. now I have to worry that my win was the pity vote because... Because I won, tainted it for you. You won the first time. Yeah. So this next round where we Tie are working is going to be very interesting. And since we're going to a non-seeded list, right. right? We're gonna we're just we're picking blind. There was a couple of people said you should know that you you know Rebecca's a better book book picker, Jeff. Ha ha. ha. And I was like, <laughs> you know, Rebecca chose all of the books, so I was really just. <laughs> So. Well, I mean, also, yeah, you won the first round where you chose all of the there books. There you go. Yeah, so right. this going in for the fall where we're each just coming in with our mm -hmm. draft list. And I've started my list already. Oh, you have? Oh, you're yeah. Already scout, you're scouting minor leaguers? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a bumper. I mean, there is. It is. It, it is. is. A tar it is you know, September, Maverick would be shooting missiles all over the place here. It's a target-rich September and October is going to be... Very rich for reading material. Yeah. You could get the first five picks that have all like won multiple national book awards, MacArthur Genius Grants, mm -hmm. like the whole, there's a whole thing. 
Um, yeah, I haven't started looking at it yet. Maybe I won't. The question will be, is Harlem Shuffle the number one pick? I mean, mm. again, I'm not telling tales here because we both know that's coming out. Is there something either of us will pick above Harlem Shuffle as an interesting dramatic point? Because right. it's probably my number one overall draft pick for my own reading. But is there something out there that's going to get me more votes is more of an interest. Right. That's a good question, because now that we know that 65 percent of our audience hasn't read Beloved, we should Mm -hmm. have asked a Colson Whitehead question. We did. Underground Railroad. Oh, that's right. We did. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So anyway, so there's that. All right. We're going to take a sponsor break and then come back and talk about what we're doing on this episode, which is something a little bit different. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series, Miss Wong got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Well, our something a little bit different thing is sort of related to our summer, our summer movie draft. Sort of not. I, I don't really remember how this came about, to be honest with you. Do you remember? I pitched it to you, but do you, what, did I, what did I tell you? Well, Why are we doing it this it way? Like Why a, are we interested in this? I think this is a marriage of like three or four ideas that we've had floating around for which is how usually how most things Mm. that the two of us do end up coming to exist Mm. of like there's a couple things we've been interested in trying for a while and this just coalesced them where we were well one the news has just not been super exciting and neither of us was feeling doing a book news show this week so we were looking for a way to not do a book news show and we've been wondering what it would be like to embed audio content into the show a little bit and what might 
what might be interesting to us and to the listeners as we did that and also like what kind of audio content could we do and it gives us a chance to do something that's kind of book clubby but is not reading a whole book mm-hmm. together and this just sort of I think then you had a conversation with somebody who was like oh yeah I can get you that audio yeah. material and so, then the other piece is we have fun close reading stuff the, t- the yes. famous tomato plant episodes or like <laughs> I, mean, I think the several different <laughs> the the several different streams coming down so what we're going to do here is we have the first chapter of somebody's daughter by ashley ford which just came out yesterday or no two days ago um it's 18 minutes long and we're going to embed that in the show and then we're going to talk about it i should say this is unpaid this is not a sponsored spot for them i came a little bit late i asked the good folks at Flatiron, would it be okay that's the publisher could you get me this? Is it okay to use it? Is there anything else you need to do? And they were thrilled to do it. So thanks to the good folks at Flatiron for getting us the audio and giving us permission to use it. But it's kind of a, it, it, I think the first chapter itself kind of stands by itself, which is nice, which mm-hmm. is not always true with audio excerpts. We like Ashley. We've had her on this show um, way back in the day. She was a guest on Reading Lives. Actually, some people in voting said, Ah, Jeff got somebody's daughter. I love Ashley Ford. Someone specifically said, and I was introduced to her for the first time in Reading Live, so I felt pretty good about that. And then they turned around and vote Rebecca like the traitors (laughs) bastards. They were. Um, And so it's a book we're interested in, and I think this is a a segment we're going to try out because this is something we could do from time to time to see. So if you like this, let us know. We've got suggestions how we could do it better. So we're going to talk about a few minutes, just a couple of like pre-discussion then we're going to have the spot, and then we're going to spend a few minutes talking about it in particular afterward. Is that your understanding? Of yes. What up for today, Rebecca? Yeah, that was my plan. So okay. we're on the same page coming in here. And you know, Jeff, Louise Glick has a book coming out this fall, so we can always relive our tomato dreams in a couple months. A, a short, you know, a limited series where we go through every single <laughs> poem in the Glick um, new collection. I'm, I'm ready. Them. I will never one do the one. Lonesome Dove podcast, but I'll do your Louise Glick close reading. From here yeah, the until the heat death never, of the universe. That that that, <laughs> that podcast idea is like a non-Newtonian liquid. It doesn't respond <laughs> to the inputs we're getting into. The more we say no, the more the internet says yes, um, or our well. listenership says yes. So anyway, so this is the first chapter of Ashley Ford's memoir, her debut. She's been writing online for a long time. And actually, towards the end of the book, you get a little bit of her becoming the Ashley Ford on the internet, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know the story of how she got her first job and all that panned out, which I found very interesting as well. Ashley Ford grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, and the book is called Somebody's Daughter. And I think we should talk about why that title matters in like 10 different ways. That's interesting mm. after we listen to the subject. And what you're going to hear in this first chapter is a present-ish day, Ashley, get a phone call from her mom in a way that we all know this feeling of getting a phone call and something about the phone call signals to you that this isn't just, hey, what's up, girl? Or, hey, what's up, darling? You know, it's, it's, it's something else that goes on. And then we find out, and I think this is on the tin, so we're not spoiling anything. You find out in the first chapter, at least, that her father has been in prison for most of her life, and he is now getting out. And so mm-hmm. then Ashley, that's, what the fir- that's the hook. That's the first chapter. That's kind of the frame. And then the rest of the book, she goes back into her childhood telescopes back and forth a little bit at a time and talks about all the things that went in to her it's a make it's a it's a diary of a the coming it's a coming of age story there's mm-hmm. no other way to put it um i should say this right now i can't think of a trigger warning that doesn't apply here 
Mm-hmm. Um, outside of does the dog die? There are no dogs in this, so they cannot die. Um, but there's trigger warnings up and down. It is by turns difficult and beautiful. Um, I want to talk about tone a lot. I want to talk about her approach to what the difficult things that she talks about a little bit as well, uh, maybe after the show. Um, and then I think the other thing is that she's a great narrator. She's yeah. a real, it's, it's, as we've said before, I, I think Rebecca agrees with me. My favorite, one of my favorite reading experience, if not my favorite reading experience, frankly, is listening to a memoir by someone who's a good writer and a good narrator. And I think those ticks those boxes for me. Rebecca, what else should we say about it before we, we plug, we uh, hit play? Yeah, I think the real highlight of this book, it's a wonderful and really powerful story, but it's Ashley's voice, both yeah. on the page and her literal voice delivering the audio that makes this so unique and what it is. There would be so there's so many ways that you could tell this kind of coming of age story. And many of them I think would be powerful and important. But though, as you said, the way that she approaches it, and the, I think the particularities of her voice are just really important to how this book works and to how her writing works mm-hmm. in general and to why she's, I think why she's been successful in so many different formats and so many different mediums as well. Um, but you'll hear it because we're going to play yeah. it for you. So like the, the old English teacher, me can't help but do this is a couple of things that you might listen for, especially <laughs> that I, I want to talk about with Rebecca after the fact. I want to talk about the physical space that she's in, in this chapter. Cause I think, that's interesting how her relationship with her boyfriend is um, described here is, is also really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the other one is the thing that really jumped out to me as being something that you could listen to by itself, even if you didn't go ever read the rest of the book, which I think you should. And I think probably after listening to it, you'd be more likely to is it captures something, you know, Emerson w- once wrote, and I've always thought about that, that the thing that we sometimes react to most strongly, but also, we look for is when someone reflects to us an experience, a sensibility and understanding a feeling that we have that haven't been able to articulate. And the way she talks about the structure of her interactions that she tries to keep with her mom, Mm -hmm. it's really smart. And the other thing I think is really interesting about the whole thing is this is a book that could be about any number of things that happen to Ashley or that she does could be the center of the book. But it's not about that. What is the book actually about is a question I want to ask. And what do we mm. see in the, the opening chapter? Any any, any other um, prelude, Rebecca? Or did I already ruin it all? As <laughs> I think she writes about her sensory experiences yeah. and conveys. Yeah, she conveys how she's feeling. She conveys emotion without having to label the emotion directly by talking about what's going on in her body. Um, and that. I find that to be like incredibly insightful and also a thing that really brings a reader into mm-hmm. um, into the experience with the writer. Yeah. All right. We're going to do, there'll be a quick ad break and then you will hear without us intervening again, the first chapter of Somebody's Daughter by Ashley Ford. I believe it's about 18 minutes long. So sit back and enjoy, and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice 
of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Chapter 1 Just remember, you can always come home. There it was. I expected and hated when my mother said those words. Two years before this call, I'd moved to Brooklyn from Indiana. Now I lived in Flatbush with my boyfriend, Kelly. Back home in the Midwest, our friends were building four-bedroom houses on one-acre lots with mortgages comparable to the monthly rent of our one-bedroom. After living in the city for a year or two, I marveled at home features I would have called standard before I left. Features like dishwashers, in-unit laundry, and backyards. The apartment we lived in now had one of those, the dishwasher. When it ran, the second phase of the wash cycle shook the floor and walls with a deep rumble. I felt it in my feet while I paced the floor. I'd gotten up from dinner to take the call from my mother. She still lived in Fort Wayne, my hometown. We hadn't lived in the same city or the same house since I left for college 11 years earlier. She called every few weeks, I answered every other call, and we usually had a good time talking for 10 to 15 minutes. I taught myself to keep our phone conversations light, or as I like to think of it, complication-free without lying. I didn't want to lie to her. I wanted to be able to talk to my mother the way I could with most other people, as myself. But she wasn't just anybody. She was my mother, so that was impossible. There were limits. We only dove into subjects that wouldn't end in arguments, which was mostly whatever would make us both laugh. When she said that thing to me, that I could always come home, part of me wanted to reply, Mama, I love you, but I'll work myself past the white meat, down to the bone, and fistfight every stranger I run across on the street before we live under the same roof again. That was the hyperbolic expression of a feeling I did not allow myself to verbalize, for fear of ruining our smooth interaction. And it would have. There was no way to make it sound like a joke, because in some way, I wasn't joking. 
I got angry with myself for even thinking the thought because I knew it would hurt her to know it had ever been in my mind. I got mad at myself, too, for not saying it out loud anyway, for not caring if it hurt her, if it meant telling the truth. Before she called, Kelly and I were eating. We were lovers who lived together, trying to find out if we had would ever turn two people in love into the kind of family either of us wanted. We decorated and burrowed into our apartment, the nest, as he began to call our tight, warm space. We hung cheap framed prints on the walls, topped bookshelves with action figures and small stuffed animals. We created a barricade between our softest selves and the sharp elbows of the city surrounding us. It wasn't that we couldn't take a hit. We just weren't used to the pace. But we still believed we could figure it out. Either way, we were finally home, in our home, together. And I felt protected by our walls and the love shared there between them. In our small kitchen... I wanted to cook for everyone and anyone, which mostly ended up being Kelly. It was a developing skill, but to my surprise, I was not a disaster. It was one of the ways I was learning to soothe myself, suggested by a therapist who told me, take the time to feed yourself food that feels good and tastes good. Who better to do that for than you? It felt like exactly the kind of thing you pay someone to say to you. I still did it. Losing myself in the construction of a meal was the closest thing I had to a hobby. The night my mother called, I made pasta. I tried to prepare the food to be served hot and ready minutes after Cal walked through the door. He would have eaten my pasta at any temperature I offered it to him, but I wanted to get it right. When he closed the bookstore where he worked, he didn't get home until 9.45 p.m. at the earliest, closer to 10 if he had to count the drawer more than twice. My timing didn't always work out, but this evening I pulled it off. Our plates were piled with thick ropes of linguine and a homemade garlic tomato sauce oozing from the ends of our forks. When my phone buzzed on the counter, I'd squinted at the screen before answering. I'd been trying to spend less time holding or even looking at my phone. Kelly could walk away from his phone for half a day before remembering it existed. Engaging with various social media platforms didn't appeal to him the same way. He often asked me to put mine away, to be present with him, especially during meals. He wasn't wrong to ask, and I did not resent the request unless it embarrassed me. I knew I spent too much time on my phone, but sometimes I wished he could ignore that as well as I could. Still, I loved and wanted to be present with him. The only reason I gave a second thought to answering the phone during our meal was that my mother had worked the same job for more than two decades, and these days was almost always asleep by nine, if not before. Seeing her name flash across my phone screen worried me, so I picked up. Hello, mother, I said in a faux posh voice. It was meant to keep things as jovial as the moment could stand. Usually she would respond with her own equally posh voice. Hello, daughter, 
Then we'd both giggle and tell each other something silly or gossip or ask the question we'd called to ask. This time my mother said, hi, baby. And I knew this wasn't a quick gossiping call. I walked into the bedroom to be on my own. I shut the door behind me and sat on the bed. My chest was tight with anticipation for whatever she said next. I started to count my breaths the way my first therapist had taught me, but couldn't remember how long I was supposed to hold the breath or for how long I was supposed to let it out. I never thought enough about breathing until I needed to, and by then, it was too late. I've heard people describe panic as something that rises up inside them. For me, panic radiates in the threads of my muscles, bangs in the back of my skull, twists my stomach, and sets my skin on fire. It doesn't rise or fall. It spreads. Was it one of my siblings? My worst fear was that my mother called to tell me something happened to either one of my two brothers or my sister. Since high school, maybe even a little before then, I'd experienced recurring nightmares about one of them dying. Never dreamt of anything too gory, thank God. I never had to watch them die, not even in the worst iterations of my dreams. I always arrived in the aftermath left to deal with the reality of losing them before waking and getting the chance to prove to myself my little loves were still here. My mother knew about my nightmares and had sent me back to bed many times after I burst into her room to listen to my youngest brother's heartbeat or watch my sister's back fall and rise with the deep and heavy but living breath of sleep. The dreams intensified when I left for college and again when I eventually left Indiana altogether. Her voice pulled me back to our halting conversation. She reassured me from the other end of the phone line, nobody's hurt, everybody's okay. The top half of my body collapsed with relief, and I fell back onto the bed. I closed my eyes, and when that didn't shut out enough light, laid my forearm against my closed lids until the view behind them faded into purple and black like the climax of a bruise. So what is it, Mom? I waited for her to speak and cursed what felt like dramatic pauses under my breath. We'd never found an easy way to talk about hard things, so we struggled to say anything at all in hard times. If she was calling about money... I wish she would just ask for what she needed so I could be honest about whether or not I could help and we could be done. My mother huffed. She sensed my impatience. That I was an adult who was allowed to be frustrated with her annoyed her whether she verbalized it or not. For all the ways we chose to remain silent, communicating our displeasure never actually required words. She spoke. Your dad is getting out of prison. My breath caught between my mouth and lungs, unsure in which direction it was most needed. My heart hit the gas, rushing blood to parts of my body calling out for it, and my hands trembled. What were those breathing counts again? Six in, six out, six in, seven out? Was I going to cry? 
I touched my face with a shaking hand to be sure I hadn't already started. Nothing. My mother didn't speak, and it no longer felt like a performance. It felt right to have all that space for my words, my feelings, whether or not they decided to show up and tell me how to respond. My heartbeat traveled to every end of me, pumping, pumping, pumping through my ears. I moved my mouth enough to ask the only question presenting itself with any clarity in my mind. When? In about two weeks. I just found out he's coming home. She paused, and once again I was grateful to have room for my thoughts. Are you okay? I wasn't, but I didn't want to have to keep talking about how I wasn't okay. It was a relief to know my siblings were unharmed and she hadn't done or said anything wrong. The ends of her questions lingered like she really did want to help, and I believed she did. The issue was that I'd been waiting to hear that my father was getting out of prison my entire life. And now that someone called me and said it was happening, all I could feel was how much I wanted to get off the phone. I was tempted, as I always am, to take the bait when my mother offers me empathy. Tempted by my fantastical belief that one day I will lower my walls and she will do the same. Then I end up blaming myself for not remembering to stick to the conversational paths, offering the least resistance, furious at myself for veering too far into the unexplored or exiled. Or worse, I'd be drawn into her fantasy that we were already close. If my mother and I shared anything without having carefully considered it, it was this undying ember of a dream that we will someday, somehow, find ourselves reaping the bounty of a blooming mother-daughter bond, the roots of which we both refused to tend in the meantime. I told her I was okay. She didn't press me and I offered nothing else. I wondered if maybe she didn't want my answers anyway, and the single thought was convincing enough for me to keep my mouth closed. I thanked her for telling me about my dad, told her I loved her, waited to hear it back, and hung up the phone. Dazed, I walked back to the kitchen counter and sat down beside Kelly, wanting nothing more than to be close to him. I didn't want to be touched, even as I begged myself not to cry. I laid my phone back on the counter, face down. He was still finishing his meal, but stopped eating and turned to me. My head spun with words, images, bits of conversations, music and colors, making up a swirl of debris zipping past my face and returning seconds later moving too quickly for me to reach out and hold on to anything long enough to make sense of the patterns they made or whatever they tried to tell me. If I'd had the option, I would have called my grandmother to tell her the news myself and hear her shout, God is so good, as if she just put in a prayer request for this very outcome. She had been reliably religious, and though I never would be again, Her exclamations of joy brought me comfort when I needed it most. I needed it now. I tried to count again, 
to breathe, or at least go numb enough to speak without crying. My emotions moved through me faster than I could name them. Feeling any of it felt like the beginning of losing control, and losing control felt like certain death in my body, if not my mind. If I didn't process the feeling, I wouldn't feel it, and if I didn't feel it, it couldn't kill me. What was that about? he asked. I picked up my fork and took a bite of my food. It was cold now. It was still good, but not perfect. I chewed, swallowed, and spoke without looking up. My dad's getting out of prison in two weeks. I kept eating. Kelly quit moving and stared at me. His eyes popped open and his jaw lagged a bit before he snapped it shut again. Well, he asked, how does that make you feel? I don't know, I said. I looked down at my phone, wondering if I should call my mother back and say more or ask more. But what would I say? What questions did I have that she could answer? If I knew the right words or the right questions, I didn't trust myself to say them the right way. If I called back, even if I needed to call back, we would fight. I felt certain that was true. Then I stopped eating and, despite my own internal protests, began to cry. Kel, I sobbed. I really don't know how I feel. I sat on the stool, gulping air and swiping at my tears. My boyfriend watched me, sat patiently beside me, and when I lowered one of my hands into my lap, he covered it with his own. I felt like I knew my father, and I knew he felt like he knew me too. In reality, we'd spent the majority of both our lifetimes mentally constructing versions of one another we couldn't physically confirm or deny the existence of. We dreamed of one another, what we might be like long before we met. My Uncle Clarence, my father's closest brother, used to stare at me when we were in the same room. Sometimes I caught him. You gotta excuse me, he'd smile. A smile that felt familiar and safe from the beginning. You look just like my brother, but smaller and with pigtails. Then he'd hug me, and we'd laugh to keep the sadness away. I always wished he'd say more about the little brother he loved, the man who left me with his face and little else. He rarely did. I didn't see Uncle Clarence that often. I kept wishing anyway. The few times I visited my father, though pleasant, bowed under the weight of our expectations. We were happy to see one another, but we could not always say the thing we wanted to say most and risk spoiling the other's dream. We never discussed them yet somehow agreed on these terms, an unspoken pact between an emotionally desperate father and daughter, made-up contracts for a shoestring bond. That's okay, baby, my father would say when I tried to apologize on the phone for not writing. You write me when you want to. I'll be waiting patiently and happily. He kept writing. He wrote that I was his favorite girl, I was brilliant, and I was the best daughter anyone could ever hope for. For a long time, that was all I needed. 
Until, of course, I needed more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, Rebecca. They've just listened to, even though we just stopped talking three seconds ago, now everyone who's just listened to the first (laughs) chapter of Somebody's Daughter, where would you like to begin? How how would you like to start? What what strikes you the most here? I think I want to start at the beginning with that, just remember, you can always come home. Yeah. And there are things that she articulates that fall into that, like, um, the realm of that Jerry Maguire, the things we think but do not say. Yes, right. <laughs> and talking about how complicated it is for her to hear her mom say this, that you can always come home and to know where her mom is coming from with it, with the desire to have the kind of relationship where Ashley could come home anytime and feel safe and that her mom wants to believe that that's what's happening. But also for Ashley then unpacking mm-hmm. what home has meant to her. And Mm -hmm. not to show my whole hand, but I think this book is just as much about being her mother's daughter and her grandmother's granddaughter as it is about being her father's daughter. It's the great trick. Well, I don't think it's a trick. It's a misdirection. It's a, I don't know, maybe a layering is a different word Mm -hmm. because the titular somebody's daughter, if you read the blurb, I assume this too, this was largely going to be about being the daughter of someone who's serving a, a... what, three decade or like two, yeah, 25 years? 25 I think years, is, something like he, that. She doesn't actually mm-hmm. say, but you can piece it together. 25 years in jail, but really he's so absent that that is a important part of her emotional and, life, but not a real interesting part of her yeah. actual lived experience. And I think we should give our listeners the groundwork too, that the introduction to the book is in her father's voice and is a letter that her father wrote her from prison talking about how, you know, it's been 20 years since I've seen you. That letter that I just Mm. received from you is the first communication that we've had in 20 years. He lays the groundwork there with real, she, she presents her father with so much grace and as a person who has a lot of grace that he is entering those conversations with her with a lot of like humility and gratitude for who she is and hoping for some ongoing connection with her. And so you, you end that short introductory chapter like ready for a story yeah, about right. their relationship. And that then the next thing that happens is just remember, you can always come home. And this mm-hmm. conversation with her mother and all the things that home and all the things that her mother represents is a, like, it's a switcheroo, but not in a bad way. It's just a, a redirection of how we're supposed to understand her, I think. Mm-hmm. And that this, you can always come home. For those of us who don't live where we grew up, which is a, you know basically what we mean by home here, and our parents who may still live there, we all know we could always go home, right? <laughs> Most of us, I guess there's maybe some of you out there have parents that wouldn't want your, them, you to live, live closer. But I'm going to guess the, the more typical for those of us who moved away is that there's this unsaid, maybe largely unsaid, thing that both the parent and the child know 
is they don't live home because they don't want to live at home. Right? right. That that's so and it's so embedded in there that it's painful to even think about, I think. And that her mom starts with that. Mm-hmm. So it tells you something that you don't know yet about how right. her mom and she have a relationship, right? Because it's kind of hostile, frankly. That's kind of a hostile thing to say to a kid, unless they really need to come home you know, for, for whatever reason. But if you just call your child on a Tuesday for no reason and say, you know, you could always come home. It's basically an indictment, right? Like you don't care enough about me. You don't love me. You, don't, you know, you, you aren't where I want you to be. And so you've got to basically figure out a way to live with that. Yeah, it's either an indictment or a misunderstanding or I think willful ignoring, just depending on your flavor of experience of what the coming home would mean to the yes, child in this right. case, that right. parents may be, I think you're right, that in, in many or most cases, the parents would be very happy to have their adult kid come home for whatever reason or live closer mm-hmm. to home, if not like back in the house you grew up in for any reason or for no reason at all. If you're the child who's getting this, you can always come home means some kind of like loss or defeat or failure or something bad has happened, or you've had to give up the things that you've been hoping for to go do this thing in many cases. And it's different than, can you please come home? Or I need you to come Mm -hmm. home like that. It's different from meet your familial obligation in some way. It's different from please come care for me because I'm aging or dying or, you know, all those things that happen as parents age. But, you know, because yeah, it's, it doesn't feel functionally different than boy, it would be, you know, it would be so great if you lived closer. Right. Right. Because, and I don't really know why it's like tectonically different than saying that. And maybe it's the making the aggressive part transparent and saying, this mm-hmm. is about my desire. And I'm putting the I statement in there. Like, this is how I would feel. You could always come home. It's both possibility. And there's no, there's no centering of the person saying that there's no pronoun for them right. in that sentence. So they, it's just sort of ambient you know, I wish things were different than they were. Yeah. And that's about me. It's not about what you want, actually. Right. It's about... In this moment. It's about the parent's desire Mm -hmm. with an unwillingness to state the desire. And the you can always come home, sort of the unspoken follow-up is like, yeah, but I don't want to. And that's, I think that's the point of pain for parents in these kinds of moments or these kinds of stories is not being able to fully like you're kind of looking at it out of the corner of your eye mm-hmm. that your child has left and has chosen to stay gone. Right. Right. And <laughs> and that even broaching it from a parent's point of view and I'm starting to get to the other side of the coin here because mm-hmm. I have kids of my own and eventually you know I'm trying to learn about this kind of stuff so that one day I'm sure that if my kids do live far from me I will feel the thing that initiates this kind of behavior, this kind mm-hmm. of talk. Is there some way to communicate? You know, I know you're happy where you are. I know you're living your life. If you ever wanted to come home and live closer, I would do anything I could to help you do that. But also, I want you to be happy. So if it's like, is, does that, is that better? I don't know, Rebecca. I don't know that it might. It may not be. It might, is there? I'm not even sure at this point where I am in my life if it's any better, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm gonna, I can only answer this from my personal yeah. experience. And I think it's a thing that is so felt in families that it doesn't need to be said. Yeah. Like, what am I, what that, work am I doing there if I actually say that? Right. Other yeah. Than I, I, to open a wound or something. I, I think know. you're, I think the work there and the example that you just gave is making yourself feel better 
about how you're stating it. And it is better than the passive aggressive. You could always come home, but you're not saying anything that your kid isn't already aware of and dealing with the internal consequences of knowing that they're choosing Mm -hmm. against it. The only way it makes sense to say that in a way that isn't at least marginal or mostly passive aggressive, if you really have any doubt in your mind that your child doesn't think they could come home Mm -hmm. in some way, and then you're really just saying, just so you know, if you ever want to, and maybe you already think this, and I'm not going to mention it again, you let me know, but right. You know, if, and that's the, and the irony here to turn it back towards the book is Ashley knows, and we're going to find out in the course of the book that this is a dangerous invitation mm-hmm. and probably her mom doesn't actually believe it her, yeah. her, or because so much of what this book about is imagined relationships, ima- what could be versus what is because the thing that happens over the course of the book that you don't know yet here is that either because of her father's position or whatever ashley is able to imagine a different kind of relationship with her father than the lived one she has with her mother which varies from somewhat normal to out and out abusive to mm-hmm. you could have gone to jail, right? I mean, I don't know what else to say. There's things that her mom does mm-hmm. that are felonies. Yeah. Um, and Ashley has come to, you know, one other fingerprint on this book that you can tell that Ashley spent a lot of time in therapy and taken it a lot to heart mm-hmm. uh, for sure because her mechanism for dealing with her mother is to have basically a mental game plan of how to deal with her. Certain things she doesn't says, she, t- subjects she won't talk, how long she will talk, even the strategy of like greeting her with a fake posh, posh, uh, posh voice that you just heard, mm-hmm. you know, this hello, mother, hello, daughter. It keeps it breezy as a way of being guarded. So Ashley's very guarded. And you know what? She should be guarded yeah, around her mother. I agree. And the way that she talks about trying to keep calls complication free without lying. Like, I think mm. so much of her relationship with her mom throughout the book, but also just a a central question of this book is how do we engage with our families authentically, like without lying? How do we tell our own truths and be kind to the people in our lives also, and also protect ourselves? Mm -hmm. And she needs that protection based on all of the experience that she had with her mother growing up. That's not a situation you want to walk into Mm -hmm. unguarded. But we have all these feelings that we don't verbalize. She has all these feelings with her mom that she doesn't verbalize because they would ruin the smooth interactions. And then there's that extra layer that you just heard in the chapter where then she's like, well, but I got mad at myself for not saying it anyway, for not telling the truth, even if it would hurt her. And that dance between what you know to be your truth and not wanting to, you want to know your truth, you want to honor your truth. And then you also don't want to speak so much truth or speak it in a way that hurts the person you're talking to or ultimately damages the relationship. Because there's a different version of this book that other memoirists have written that's about, here's why I don't talk to my mom anymore. And the fact that she's chosen to remain in relationships with her family members and to try to engage in a way that is both safe and truthful for her and kind to her parents kind to the people that she grew up with i think is really remarkable yes and just a huge question 
Yeah, if if you learned, like say, if you didn't have chapter one, say, and you started at the beginning, more like you do with chapter two, and you found out by the end of the book that Ashley hadn't spoken to her mom for 10 years, you'd be like, that makes total sense to me. Probably mm-hmm. the smart, quote unquote, smart, smart choice, right? Because it's she doesn't get a lot of what I would hope a child gets from a parent, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And yet... She's trying to figure out how to be in relationship with people where there's like third rails. They're all third. All the rails are thirds, right? How do you be in relation with your father? And I'm not going to, it's not a spoiler, but I I think for those of you who go on to read the book, it's going to be important to hear about what her father did Mm -hmm. um, that got him in jail because that piece is a third rail too. It's almost like her her relationship with her parents are almost the inverse of each other, right? Where... Her mother is present and dangerous to her, Mm -hmm. and her father is absent and safe, but there's also a piece of that that's super complicated, right? Mm -hmm. That the closer, and you can see her wrestling with this as a girl, as a young girl, and clearly something she talked about in therapy, I would say, is how was it that these these two most important relationships in my life were so loaded and unfair and unsafe and impossible for a three, four, five, six, seventeen, forty-eight year old. I'm, you know, I'm just going in the future mm-hmm. to understand. Because this is not educated by Tara Westover, which ends with her in Oxford bopping around studying the romantics or whatever, right? I think that's important to know. I think that's important. I think that bridges with something you said. Like you could understand that this ends with Ashley Ford in New York City doing her thing and she hasn't talked to her family in 25 years in a way that's a more expected outcome it is than her starting with this phone call dealing it's neither a reconciliation it's neither healed nor fissured and you don't see that very often and i think that's what blows me away about the beginning and then ultimately the end of this book too Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's very messy and human in a way that we can all relate to in some capacity the story isn't wrapped up but she's also I can't remember who I originally heard say this, but that person talked about that when you're telling your own stories or when you're writing a Mm. memoir, especially you don't write, you shouldn't write from the open wounds. You should write from the scars. Mm. And I think that's what we're seeing when she's talking about perspective that she has and the ways that she views these relationships because she's had time to process them and access to therapy to unpack stuff and make sense of it and figure out how to do this math of how do I keep myself safe? How do I tell my truth? How do I also, you know, not be so truthful that I hurt my mother because I still care about my mother. And it's this real practice of vulnerability and a real like I think I think it can be a very brave choice that people make to disconnect from families that are harmful yes. to them there's nothing I'm, easy I'm, no, yes, I'm not saying about, that's wrong yeah. I shouldn't if that came yeah, across yeah. Oh, no, 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 no it didn't come out that way I just I'm setting up like right. I think I think they can both be brave choices and neither mm-hmm. of them is easy and it's a really brave choice that she makes in wanting to find a way to stay in relationships with her parents and in, like to try to engage with those and also to tell us about that, to tell the readers about that so openly. And it's the kind of story that you can only really tell when you are in the place of it's a scar and mm. it, the, the wounds aren't still open. And I think I think there's also no way to talk about this book or we shouldn't talk about this book without talking about the significance of it being an Oprah imprint book, mm-hmm. that this is also the kind of work in the culture that Oprah 
has done and is trying to do. Um, I think we're seeing her lean more, even more into this now with the series on Apple TV with Prince Harry and talking about mental health and really working to destigmatize the work that goes into healing from things. And underlying that is this implicit statement that we all go through things and mm -hmm. some of them are worse than others. And the kinds of things that Ashley experienced as a kid, some of those things are very bad and are very harmful. A and we can all try to heal in some way. And here's what that looks like. And she puts the, we get information about what the wounds were, but she's also... Mm -hmm. There's a level of comfort for the reader, I think, because we know that she's talking to us from a place of yes. some amount of healing. Right. Yeah. yeah, and that sets up why well, I want to talk about some of the specific sort of like description setting here is that we don't know it yet. But the apartment, the little life she's, the nest, mm -hmm. I think was very interesting. Yeah. That's called it's the charming. nest in the beginning. And just how she and Kelly have put their lives together, what their relationship, what their physical space looks like compared to what we're going to hear later. So just a couple of details. One is... Ashley keeps very close track of when Kelly is going to be home mm -hmm. and so that she can be there. And in this particular case, she's making dinner. So it's 10 o'clock at night. She knows when it gets here. She's timing the food so that it gets ready and they, they can spend some time just together. A lot of the rest of the book is about Ashley avoiding people mm -hmm. and, and knowing where they are so she can't be here. And this is the inverse of that. Also, there's food but it's not presented like this, right? It's not presented where mm -hmm. it's a moment of care for her. It, both the caring for her, she says that like this is something her therapist encouraged her to do to cook, something she could do for her, but then also she can share with Kelly at the same time. Mm -hmm. He would accept it. He would accept he would, She'd like for it to be warm, but he would accept it cold. I thought was very important to come mm -hmm. with later that she, he will take what he, she has to give and not question it, not say it could have been something else, not you know, judge it in some kind of way, just to accept what is given. And then the walls, mm -hmm. the bookcases, the stuffed animals, they live in the same place, but it could have been a, a four bedroom with one acre. And then she gets this very fraught phone call. She's visibly shaken. And again, we don't know this yet, but Kelly is says, what was that about? She tells him. And then he says, how does that make you feel? Mm -hmm. To my memory of the book, no one ever asked Ashley mm -hmm. how she feels yeah. in the whole rest of the book. And it seems very simple, and it is, but if no one's ever asked you how you feel, and then you could say that without the fear of judgment, reprisal, or having it weaponized against you is a different kind of mode of understanding. So part of that healing is that your insides aren't just fixed, I think is important mm -hmm. as we're going here. Some is you make a life that can heal. Like some of the healing is what does your life look like and how do you construct your life yes, to support yeah. yourself? And I think those things work together to construct the healed person that through the lens of the trauma that she talks about experiencing as a child, there are a lot of reasons that her home life could have looked a bunch of different ways and that her romantic relationships could have looked a bunch of, di of different ways. And it takes real work to overcome patterns that would have attracted someone mm. with a lot of trauma like that to a more chaotic situation or to a person who isn't safe for them. And I think we get to hear her wrestle with that a little bit, that it is good and healing and wonderful to have this partner that she knows when he's coming home. It's a thing she looks forward to when he's coming home. She can care for him. Like she's anticipating his what his mood and his needs, but in a way that is filled with love, not filled with like fear of what this person might be mm -hmm. walking in with. And it's also not natural 
for the kinds of relationships that she grew up having and for the ways that she was treated by her family. Like, you know, kids learn to be very vigilant in situations like that because it's a matter of protecting themselves and that she has done all the work that she needs to do to be able to translate that into not vigilance, but awareness and care for this Mm -hmm. person. And then to receive, to be able to receive it back in kind does, it it does set that up as you know that there's a, an ocean of distance mm-hmm. between this relationship she has with Kelly and the kinds of relationships that exist in other parts of her life and how you cross that space is largely what this book is about, I think. Yeah. The other, the other remarkable to me, um, I, I guess, feature of the book, and it's, it's less clear in this chapter because you don't know too much yet about anything except the, it's a very hooky kind of a read. You know, it's like mm-hmm. someone's father's getting out of jail that's been in jail for 30 years and you've got this other, you, you know that the relationship with the mother is fraught. You have no idea how fraught it is. But the other thing that's striking to me is how Ashley does not judge other people, mm-hmm. including the people, let's say it, who deserve judgment the most. Um, she describes her experiences and what people have done to her, around her, for her, in how, what actually happened, and then how it made her feel, and then how she responded to it. No, nowhere does she say, or really even impli- implies the wrong word, or even sort of like subtextually say, my mom was abusive and that was bad. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. It's not that, it's not that simple because she... I don't know if this is a therapy move. I don't know if it's on Ashley's kind of sensibility is she's trying to figure out how to, she spends so much time as a kid just navigating the world. Judgment doesn't help you survive in that kind of a situation, right? It doesn't help her to say to herself or anybody else, my mom's abusive and my dad's a felon and, uh, you know, some other horrible stuff happened to me. She's talking about, she's narrating a kind of navigation, a kind of survival, a kind of, I don't even know how to put this, but it's not even a reconciliation, but just sort of an acceptance almost without forgiveness. Because I was also expecting to be, to honestly, Rebecca, some moment of, and I forgave my mother. Mm. Her mother is not forgiven here. Or that's not the, it's even outside of forgiveness. I I don't even know how to think about it. Yeah, I think that's a great, way to phrase that, that it's not like I had the option to forgive her and I chose not to. It's just not part of the equation at all. And I think there's Mm -hmm. real, I mean, there's, she has so much compassion for her parents. And I think real does a beautiful job of contextualizing the experiences Mm -hmm. that they have to whatever degree she knows about and understands those that must have led them to the behaviors that they did and to the ways that they treated her to the kinds of trauma that they must have experienced and I think that's part of being able to have compassion for herself and to understand how to navigate herself through these things but yeah the the question of do I forgive this is just not even that question's just not on the table and I and why do you think that is Rebecca I mean I've I've Mm. thought about this but I'd be curious like why isn't this couched in the language of forgiveness or not non-forgiveness I think because the the way that I read this, and I guess like this is now my sensibility on mm-hmm. coming to the, a story like this, is that like anger, just sitting in anger about it, where you're angry and then you need to forgive someone, is not a productive emotion in and of itself. I think mm-hmm. that anger is an activating emotion that moves you into some something else, some other kind of process. And 
And usually anger shows up when we're trying to cover hurt or when we've been hurt, but it's easier to feel angry and powerful. And she looks at the pain instead. And I think when you look at the pain and deal with the pain, like there's a real process of developing compassion for yourself there and that she has this bigger sense of what her family's experiences are and what the makeup of their world has been. And if you can see the experiences that produced a person who would mm -hmm. abuse you, you can understand that that's not a bad person, but mm -hmm. that they have experienced things that shaped them in ways also. And that makes it about how do I find compassion for them? Like what good would being angry about it do? Or what good would just being angry about it do? Like, mm -hmm. which is not, to, I think you're completely justified in being angry. If someone treats yeah. you any of these ways, it's a very natural response. And I, would guess that Ashley has probably felt that at some point. I we would get just some guess. scenes of anger with her mother at yeah. least throughout the course of the book. It's but it's there. just like you don't he you can't heal if you're just angry. No, and so I, I think she has taken that as the activating space of like anger is a sign that something else is going on. Am I hurt? Am I disappointed? What has happened? And then what do you do with that? And she is a person who has I, I don't know kind of magically become very able to lean into that work and to ask herself those questions and to look at those things that no one in her family has been willing to look at before. You know, like the internet likes to pass around little images that say mm -hmm. what ran into your family and what ran in your family until it ran into you. And I think that's one of the themes of this is that without saying here is a laundry list of the patterns that have yeah, run in my family right. or the cycles of abuse that have run in my family, she I, she looks at them and identifies them and talks to us about them and is also telling us about what she's doing to try to not repeat those things. Yeah. By, by making the focus on her response and sort of we know at the end that she's gotten to a place, you know, there is no... Um, place of last you know there there is where is the place of understanding to quote job there is no final mm -hmm. resting place where we're all fine and it's always fine forever but because we conditionally know that she's made it to the nest a place of safety at least as it was presented that a lot went into that and she she made it but that how she did it i think is is pretty remarkable i guess the other thing about the forgiveness which is interesting and there's not too much christianity in there but there's a little bit if you are not forgiven, you are damned in the in the Christian tradition, right? And that's a, its own kind of binary. And actually, seems uninterested in if I forgive you or don't forgive you, that becomes a yes or no. And if you are unforgiven, we kind of can't have a relationship, right? That's kind of what mm -hmm. we. I mean, that's a common understanding of forgiveness. You, you, please forgive me. I can't forgive you. And that kind of fissure cannot be reconciled. So you can't make it about that because then if you are, I also don't think. What are the limits of forgiveness? I think her mom and her dad have done things that are beyond the pale of forgiveness in a lot of ways that can't be erased, mm -hmm. that can't be ignored, that can't be forgotten. And if that's the case, then what is forgiveness really? It means I'm not going to hold that specific thing against yeah. you or well, absolved. It's gone. That's not right either somehow. I think this goes back to one of our favorite shared questions and something that I was talking about at the top of the episode that there is a lot of grace here. And I think mm. there's a meaningful difference between grace and forgiveness in That's our right. relationships. And we see that like she gives her parents a lot of grace. She can see them and she will accept the reality 
of who they are and accepting the reality of so, of who someone is is not the same thing as condoning it. No. And I think she can make those she's making those distinctions, but there is a very I think deeply felt sense that she can only control her. Like and that's certainly a therapy thing, you know, like I can mm-hmm. only control how I respond to things. I can only control how I go into this conversation. So I will go into it this way. I will try to keep this phone call with my mom light. I will not touch the third rail of saying something like, "Yeah, mom, I, I don't actually" The thing that always could be said. Right. I don't actually want to come you know. home or like she talks about, you know, I'm tempted to take the bait when my mom offers mm-hmm. me empathy and I'm tempted by this fantasy that one day I'll lower my walls and she's going to do the same or that I'll be drawn into my mom's fantasy that we're already close. And like she's she can see all those things and also how easy it would be to say that thing and like give her mom the thing that she knows her mom wants. And she's just holding herself in that space of like, I can see why my mom wants this. I can understand it. There's real grace there. And I think that that grace is also just the lack of judgment and then just yeah. so much compassion for yeah. how do we end up here? Like, I, I think you land in that space with the recognition that most individuals don't like we're, we're not created in vacuums and we don't behave in vacuums and that her mom and dad did things that were certainly bad or very bad and how and why, you know, mm-hmm. and how do I not? repeat those things and how do I not continue that pattern both in my own life and with my family is the core of this book and that she manages to do it so deeply about her own story without writing the self-helpy here's how Mm -hmm. you can ask yourself these questions is also a really neat trick it's it's it is really remarkable in that regard because you can see there's so many ways that this is a lifetime movie. She even talks about watching, mm, I think mm-hmm. watching, is it this book? But watching movies, but like you can see a way in which this goes into a more conventional kind of story about bad things happening to somebody. The unconventional part here is this, whatever we're going to call this sensibility of beyond, to quote the Nietzsche, beyond good and evil, but beyond yeah. forgiveness or not, right? Beyond judgment or not. It is a, is a kind of understanding. It's a lived experience of continuing to be a relationship as an as a verb right it's Mm -hmm. an ongoing process and though ashley probably has most disinterested readers reading this would totally be on her side if she says and i never spoke to either of them ever again right yeah Mm -hmm. and yet she doesn't deploy that it's not even on the table really um, and that she wants to keep the relationship open. Unfortunately for her, she kind of has to do all the work that we see here. I mean, that yeah. even, even this new understanding, she is the one that polices the, the boundaries that she needs to stay on so that her mother and she don't get into fights every single time. Um, she's the one that has to police a very, various relationships in her life and how much ongoing work that really is so it's not a this is not a she's figured something out there's no skeleton key here and she's figured it out like you see in this first chapter she gets off that call and she's talking about her you know anxiety radiating out and like Mm -hmm. this the way her body's reacting her head in her hands her internal dialogue she she tries to engage her breathing exercises and then is so overcome that she can't even remember for a moment like six in seven out seven in six like 
you could see the work happening in the moment and that ongoing work, I think. Because mm-hmm. I actually don't love, again, this is me as a metaphorician here. I don't love the scar versus open wound thing. Hmm. I, this is a scab. Because <laughs> it, it can be picked off any moment and blood will come out. Like she knows yes, the scab is accurate. there yeah. and she knows she, there's part of her that wants to itch it and scratch it and doesn't mm-hmm. care if it gets bloody because in that moment of picking it off, it'd be satisfying to throw it in her mom's face. But it's always there. And if she tends it correctly... It cannot kill her, but it needs constant attention. Yeah. It needs constant vigilance. That thing can get affected any time. It gets scraped off any time. And she has to be the one that knows where it is, to know what its characteristics are, and to care enough about herself to tend it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's the one of the deep truths that she shares is this understanding that her truth like she knows the truth for herself of her life what her story is Mm -hmm. and there are real reasons it would be tempting to say all of the words about that truth (laughs) to her mother or to her father go nuclear and just score all the points get it all out drop the atom bomb of my feelings and how you've wronged me right or like yeah, we need, yeah, here are all, right, exactly. Here are all the ways that you hurt me. Here's how much work I've had to do to overcome it. You think that we've been close. We've never been close. Like they're just, you know, she gives us all these hints of the things that she's been carrying forever. And this is also the unstated truth that if she wants to stay in these relationships, she will continue to carry them silently yes. because right. you can know your truth, but saying your truth out loud to someone else is not always beneficial. And it's, not de- definitely not beneficial if you're saying it to someone who's not safe and you, she knows that her mother <laughs> is not safe. So even though it's tempting to be like, I've done all this work, I can see all of this now, here's the whole thing. Here are all my boundaries and why I engage them with you. Like, though, if you have to have all those boundaries with a yes. person, highlighting the fact that their boundaries against that person is like, I think not that, a, that's the great yeah. mm-hmm. triple edged sword of boundaries is they're mm-hmm. useful. Um, they can be very helpful. You can understand them. And to talk about them with the person, to say to someone, I need boundaries with you, is a kind of rejection. Because yeah, like, they, they don't, if they knew that, they wouldn't be doing it. Right. Like, and this is. That's really tough. That's maybe really my tough Midwestern thing. avoidance, but I think the best boundary is one that I can put down without you knowing I've put it down. <laughs> Yeah, it's like those um, those silent dog fences that are just like, you know. <laughs> like, I just silently deployed this thing. I'm safe on this side of it. You don't even know I did anything. You don't anything even know and... it's a boundary. It's like those. It's like the, the gorilla exhibit at the zoo. <laughs> it's like there's a giant moat, but it's built in in such a way that neither the gorillas or I think about it that often. <laughs> right. It's just I there. I feel like having just said that out loud is going to like summon my therapist from the ethers. <laughs> To be like, do we need to re-engage and talk about Right. This I mean, because that's kind of one of those. I mean, now we're talking into more to more meta stuff. But like what we want, it almost goes back to feel the dreams a little bit. What we mm. both want and don't want is to have boundaries that both parties know is there. And to then somehow also magically know that we both know it's okay that they're there. That's right. the ideal situation. But that doesn't happen. I mean, I don't know how that would happen in any kind of a real way. Um, what else do we want to say about somebody's? Mm. Here's a question I was thinking about. It's a memoir. Is this a sad book? Mm, no. Though I it think... has very sad parts. <laughs> very yeah. sad parts. It has very sad parts, but we know that we know where Ashley is writing this from, mm-hmm. um, and that she is okay. 
and she's I okay. Think, she's yeah. okay. Yeah. And I think that that makes it not sad yeah. that there's, this will be ongoing work. This is the thing she's going to carry for her whole life. Making sense of these relationships for as long as her parents are alive is a thing she's going to carry along with the awareness mm-hmm. that her take and experience of those relationships is very different from especially her mom's experience right. of the relationship, but that she is okay, that we know that she's in the nest or some version of it. I think she moved, she has since moved back to Indiana, um, but that she's in a place where I think she uses the phrase, her softest self can be mm-hmm. protected and that we get to know that as listeners and as readers of the book makes this it's not a full like redemption story. I think this is a story about being a person mm-hmm. and there are sad parts of that. And it's ultimately hopeful. I think of you can, you won't get to be perfect. You won't get to be all great all the time. She's not at a hundred percent every day. Nobody is, mm-hmm. but you can get to a very full life and maybe part of a very full rich life is being able to hold your full rich life in one hand while holding all of the pain in the other hand and knowing that they inform each other. Yeah. So many of the, so many times a memoir like this would be couched in the language of the story of overcoming the story Mm. of Mm -hmm. surviving the story of triumphing over. And none of those verbs feel right to me. It needs a different kind of verb. Um, Negotiating is too, is too cold. Dealing with is too neutral. There's some other, there's some other, you know, there's some other work that's on display here that I'm having a hard time articulating, which is why you should go read it or listen to it. <laughs> yes, um, you will. If, if you manage to listen to the, those last 18 minutes and not want to immediately finish the book, I don't know what to do for you. Yeah, And that's and that's fine. We're trying. I'd like to know what people thought of this episode. Yeah. Other, you know, how we could tweak it. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts at bookriot.com. I've got a bonus you might have noticed, I didn't tell Rebecca this, that the runtime for this episode is going to be super long mm. because what I'm doing now is I'm appending Ashley's episode of Reading Lives onto the back of this episode if you would like to hear it. It's oh, just cool. going to play right through. If you're not interested in it, you know, you don't have to. But it's, it's you know, this old thing people talked about listening to it. It's a good episode. She talks about loving books in, the, in somebody's daughter and she expands on that. And some of these little anecdotes and some of the things she talked about, I remi- it was reminded me of that. Um, so it's a little bonus on top. It's a double bonus uh, here. So that's going to come up right after, I don't know what I'm going to do with the editing purposes. I don't know if I'm going to, I guess I'll wait till after that to do the, the bumper. This is very inside baseball. No one cares. <laughs> it's a good idea. You had a good yeah. idea here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank you for, for playing along. Welcome to Reading Lives, an interview podcast with interesting people who love books. I'm your host, Jeff O'Neill from BookRiot.com. My guest on this episode is Ashley Ford, essayist, memoirist, and staff writer at BuzzFeed. We talk about reading beyond what is expected of you. My teacher one day took it from me and said, you know, this is reading time, not pretend to read time, because she didn't think that I was reading it or that I understood it. Finding role models and teachers. She was something that I had never experienced before. She was a young professional woman who 
drove herself around the country to concerts, mm. who owned her own home and lived alone, um, who had a boyfriend and then didn't have a boyfriend and it didn't wreck her or ruin her. <laughs> and what happens when you meet an author who changed your life? I shut it down. My <laughs> eyes went wide. I like put my hand out in front of myself like a very like, excuse me. I'd always loved to read, um, but I'd also usually done a lot of assumptions that other people were reading as much as mm. I was. Just <laughs> <laughs> so you got outed somehow, or you outed yourself somehow. I definitely did. I mean, there were. I mean, there were things before I was in middle school, like when I was in fourth grade, um, or actually when I was in third grade. I was. We had silent reading time in my classroom, and I was bringing the book. Uh, my own personal copy of Romeo and Juliet mm. to silent reading time. And my teacher one day took it from me and said, you know, this is reading time, not pretend to read time. <sighs> because she didn't think that I was reading it or that I understood it. And I was really confused. <laughs> I, would, I would think so. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I asked her what she meant and she said, you know, what's in this book? Like very, you know, like, come on, Ashley. And I said, yes, this is my third time reading this book. And then I told her what the book was about. And, you know, I recited lines from it because I loved the language. I, I loved the book so much that I had a notebook mm. that I would just copy lines from the book into my notebook so that I could keep them in case something happened to the book. <laughs> um, and I went on to, you know, fourth grade. I was, I got pretty obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe and, you know, we got to do an author project in class and my teacher was adamant that Edgar Allan Poe was not <laughs> appropriate for a fourth grader um, <laughs> to be doing their author project over. And my mom, um, really stood up for me in that. And she had the um, perspective that if she can read it and understand it, why should she not be able to talk about who her favorite author, you know, really is? And, but it wasn't until middle school that I realized that books were life altering mm -hmm. uh, for me. And that started with a book called Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech. Never heard of it. Tell me about it. Um, Walk Two Moons, which, you know, now I read probably at least once a year, is about a young woman, um, a 13-year-old girl named Salamanca Treehiddle. And she's just gone through, you know, a very uh, specific set of circumstances. Her mother is gone. Um, she's lived her entire life on a farm that she loves. And her father has decided to move them from the farm into a city. And she has to start a new school. And um, But she still loves this farm. And she meets this friend who's named um, Phoebe Winterbottom, who's going through her own troubles at home with her mother disappearing in a very different way. Um, and Salamanca is telling this entire story um, because this has all happened sort of a little bit in the past mm. um, while she's on a road trip with her grandparents who are eccentric and loving mm. um, with her and each other. And it was the first time that I read about a young woman 
who um who was my age mm. you know at the time who was around my age who you know right because you're reading about shakespearean heroes and edgar you know dead <laughs> yeah. women on moors and stuff like that with posts oh yeah you know, okay gotcha uh, and how did I, you find the book was it something you got from school or did someone give it to you, you found it on your own how did it fall into your hand i found my teacher at the time it was um one of the books just, you know, teachers always have a bunch of books on the shelves in their classroom. And this teacher and I did not get along hmm. at all. I was, I mean, I was a smart kid, but I was hard. <laughs> that and, sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> if I don't say, if I might say. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think a lot of smart mm-hmm. kids were hard-headed. We had a lot of questions. And well, adult- especially if they told you to put your Romeo and Juliet that you're pretending to read away. That doesn't, that doesn't make for yeah. a docile um, kids you know like it does not and i was you know there was if there was one thing that bothered me as a kid it was being thought dumb mm, yep. um so or being thought as less capable mm. than i was so um but this teacher and i you know we didn't get along very well but i was actually in detention and <laughs> i happened to see this book on his shelf and i went over and grabbed it you know because i had to just be there um and he asked me if I'd ever read that book and I said no and he started to talk to me about it a little bit and you know and he was like I really think you should read it you know and it was one of the very few positive interactions mm-hmm. between the two of us and it resulted in you know me finding what is essentially um to this day my favorite book mm-hmm. In detention, you never know where they're going to come from. You know. <laughs> that's, that's, you know. that, 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 no better story illustrates that to you. You always have to have your radar up for what could be your favorite book. Um, I'm going to rewind just a little bit, um, mm-hmm. and then we'll come back to middle school if you don't mind. So you, ha- you had Romeo and Juliet in fourth, uh, third grade, and then you had Poe in fourth grade. And I presume you weren't getting those from school so because you had your own copy of Romeo and Juliet. Where were your books coming from? When you were a little kid, did you go to the library from parents, friends, extended family? Where were you getting your uh, supply, so to speak? Well, there were two ways, really. Um, we we never really had like enough money mm-hmm. that uh, we could just buy books. Like you know, I recently realized um, talking to my boyfriend who uh, grew up very differently from me that quite a few kids <laughs> grew mm-hmm. up that you know that was the one thing they could always ask for. Mm-hmm were books and their parents would get those for them. And that was not um, the case in my house. And we, we didn't have that kind of money to spare. But uh, there was the Allen County Library. Oh, I'm and- sorry, we didn't ask, where, where is Allen County, which state? Where are we in uh, uh, space? Fort Wayne, Indiana. Fort Wayne, Indiana, okay. Yes, the Allen County Library, which was just a short walk from my home. And they had a summer reading program um, where as you read, you got to like check off certain things on like a bingo board or on a map, you know, every summer it was something different. And from, and as you check things off, you got prizes, Mm -hmm. which were almost always books Mm -hmm. or they were a book and something else. And all I wanted was the books. (laughs) So, so that was how I spent my summers Mm. was doing these summer reading programs and showing up for things and trying to like cross things off and get my points as much as possible so that I could get as many books as possible. Um, And then I also was a member of the boys and girls club in Fort Wayne as well. Mm -hmm. And they also had programs where you could get free books. Um, They also had, you know, 
people donating books all the time. And, you know, one of my favorite stories about um, having books and how I got a lot of my Shakespeare books when I was younger was being at the Boys and Girls Club. And I was a, I was a, a, a member ambassador. Mm-hmm. So when certain people came um, to the Boys and Girls Club, I would give them tours of the Boys and Girls Club, especially if like there were people who were going to be donating and things like that. Like I was one of those kids that they put up front, like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> look at this kid. Doesn't she look healthy? Don't right. you wanna, <laughs> she can don't speak you and don't you like her and give us stuff. Yeah, <laughs> And give us stuff. And what I loved about it, the program, was that um, you got to talk to adults like um, a person, mm-hmm. like you weren't talked down to for the most part, and that then you got to like go eat with these adults and you just got to like have dinner and have a conversation with these adults, which to me was just the most, you know, sophisticated thing in the world. <laughs> and at that time, my uh, my favorite book was Romeo and Juliet. And there were these two lawyers who, um, these two partners who came and I gave them a tour and we sat down to eat and they were asking me about my favorite books. And I said, Romeo and Juliet. And they kind of looked at me and then they asked me why, you know, and I told them, well, you know, I just really think it's important that people realize that, you know, love really is the most important mm-hmm. thing, even if it does lead to two teenagers being really silly and doing something dumb, you know? And they were like looking at me and just seemed really amused by me. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days later, I came back to the Boys and Girls Club and these two lawyers had uh, dropped off, had signed and dropped off about seven Shakespeare's mm-hmm. um, books for me. And that was where and I have I still have oh. um, many of those because that was, you know, my first little collection of mm. Shakespeare. But the, yeah, that's where I got my books. It was mostly generosity, people giving them to me in some way or signing up for programs where I could get them for free. I, you know, I talked to, I've done a few of these and I've talked, I'm always interested in where, even before I was doing this particular show, where people got the books when they were kids and what they fell in love with. And most of us remember the first time we got a book that was our own. Mm-hmm. you know, that that we got to pick out or someone gave to us and we could read it on our own and understand it on our own. And I, it, it's really powerful um, to have a book that's your own and your brother doesn't have to read it or you didn't have to share it with somebody else. You don't have to oh, return yes. it or anything like that. Um, so you're, re- you're reading really advanced early. Now, what else were you reading when you were a kid that you remember that you really loved? Were there other... Were, did, were, was it all classics or did you read, you know, stuff kids read too? Or what were else were you reading? Oh, no. I read... I like there was a book I loved called The War with Grandpa. Oh, um, I've heard of that. Oh okay. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I loved that. Um as a as a small child, uh I loved little critter books. I loved the Berenstein Bears, mm-hmm. Amelia Bedelia, mm-hmm. uh, you know, any of those, Frog and Toad, I was obsessed. Um g- I mean, going further into I mean, I also even when I was reading the classics, I was also, you know, sneaking my mom's Danielle Steele novels mm. and her Terry McMillan novels. You know, my aunt, one of my aunts had a lot of Danielle Steele novels. And every time I went over there, I would snatch another one. Mm. Um, so. And they were, they were, 
you're saying you're using the word snatch and steal. So they were they out <laughs> for you to see, or did you have to like find them? Somehow you knew you weren't supposed to read them. I'm just kind of curious how how was that communicated to you? Well, I, I could tell I wasn't supposed to read them usually by reading the first. Few oh, pages. I see. Content um, content is king. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I got a hold of one um, and read it and just devoured it. You know, because it was Dan- I mean, Danielle still as much as she you know people are like oh you know these these grocery store books or whatever she is a really terrific storyteller <laughs> so it just grabs I mean, you from the beginning you're like you're it in it does uh, yeah. yes yes and i think that also taught me um from a very young age about the range of mm. what i could enjoy sure and Daniel what Steele i would and enjoy and, Bill and romeo and juliet what bigger range is there than that yeah jeez I mean, louise yeah <laughs> yeah and you know, and I even as even when I was reading Romeo and Juliet, I was still going back and reading um, these books from when I was a kid. Like I've always really loved to go back. Mm. Like that's a thing. Like I've even to this day, I have children's books. You know, I recently um, discovered another one of my favorite books from when I was a kid called Amazing Grace mm. um, because I looked like the girl on the cover like I looked like the girl on the cover to the point that um, my father who is an artist and but is in prison and has been my entire life mm. um, I was certain that somehow my father had drawn the pictures for this book mm. because it looks so much like me um, and you're putting the you're a kid, and that's what kids do. They put the pieces together, no matter how sort of improbable they might be. Yes, right. That my dad's an artist. I look like this. I haven't seen anything like this before. Ergo, the most likely scenario I can come up with is my dad drew this. Um, my dad drew these pictures yeah. in this book. So yeah, so I loved that book, and I still go back and read it often. And yeah, that's just been that's just been very true of my life. I, I read all over the place. I love reading pamphlets. Mm. So we're in middle school. You realized, so it was in detention. Now I, we, we skirted around it was in middle school. You said when you realized you read, you realized finally at long last that your relationship with books was maybe different than other people's. Was it the detention center book or was there some other moment in there in middle school? Where you're like, oh, 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 people really don't read as much <laughs> or have the same relationship with books that I do. Um, I wouldn't like, it wasn't necessarily the detention book. Right. I, th- I think, um, when I realized it was also, though, in this class, I, you know, being sort of a dumb kid, I mean, like not a dumb kid in like, obviously mental, like mentally, but being, you know, you you don't have a certain emotional intelligence right. or you're stubborn or whatever. You're yeah. stubborn. Um, there's a little bit of a lack of empathy in certain mm-hmm. cases, especially with adults mm-hmm. who you just assume should have all their shit together. And <laughs> the fact that they don't like really infuriates you. <laughs> Seems like a um, huge double standard. It is. Yeah. It absolutely is. Um, but this teacher that I had, this same teacher who I didn't get along with very well, had a speech impediment. And I didn't realize that he had a speech impediment. I thought he couldn't read. Mm. And it infuriated me that I had been put in a class with a teacher who could not read. And he would 
go at the, like the, we would have uh, times where he would read a book to the entire class and he would stand at the front of the class and he would begin to read and he would start to stumble over words or he would have to go back and read things over and over or multiple times. And in my mind, it was he couldn't read. Mm. And I would sit there seething until I would start to read over him. I would I would just start reading out loud the book at the same time as him, only um, faster, you know, you faster, get through it. right? Yes, faster and not having to go back and pronouncing all the words correctly. And he would understandably get angry and frustrated and kick me out of class. And I was having, you know, I had a few friends then, you know, I was never someone who belonged to much of um, like a group of friends. I was way too introverted for that um, because I have an extroverted personality, but a very introverted nature. I don't really, I'm not really into being around too many people at the Mm -hmm. same time. And he, I was talking to, you know, my couple of friends and I was just, I was so mad and I was like, you know, and he's ruining the book and I can't pay attention when he reads like that. And it's not even real reading and I'm losing my mind. And my friends who were very smart and did very well in school were just like, who cares? Mm. Like, it's a book, you know, and... Mm. You know, if it's that big of a deal, you know, and I'm like, well, he doesn't want us to read ahead. And so this is the first time I'm hearing it and he's ruining the experience. And they're laughing at me like, what do you mean the experience? Yeah, you're invested like, and they're just trying to get through the hour. They're waiting for yeah. the bell to ring. And you're, 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 you're on the edge of your seat wanting to know what happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's really just, interesting. It was not going well. This was also. Um, The first year that I, um, during a lot of reading in English and things like that, I wasn't being uh, bused to a different, more advanced school, Mm. which which had been happening for years. And I begged my mom that I not have to do that anymore um, because it wasn't a good experience Mm -hmm. for me. But, yeah. All right. So now you've had your you've had your revelation, or at least the 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 door of a revelation has been cracked a little bit for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in middle school now, and I, middle school means different things. So is this like sixth, seventh, eighth grade somewhere in there? It's it's like sixth grade. Sixth grade. Okay. Mm-hmm. Middle school for me was only um, seventh, actually seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. So some people oh. that, that's high school. I don't know. Who knows um, yeah. why they do those things? I think they just don't <laughs> know what to do with sixth and seventh graders. They don't. They, they're, just they're not grade schoolers. They certainly shouldn't be in high school. So we're going to have these sort of uh, educational purgatories where they have yes. to wait out a couple <laughs> years before Absolutely. they're a little riper. Um, right. So how about high school? Can we move along to high school a little sure. bit? So how, what were you reading in high school? Did you have teachers from there that stick out? A lot of us, oh, yeah. I think, that, have, that, that books become are important to, we have experiences of good and bad English teachers. So we've had a, a, yes. a bad but fruitful one, weirdly. Have you had, did you have a good teacher at some point along the way um, before uh, in the, your high school years that helped you out or that you liked? Oh my goodness, yes. Um, my freshman year, I had an English teacher um, named Jen Reinking. And Jen, um, who like now I feel comfortable calling Jen because we're friends in real life. Oh, that's now. so cool. Oh, I've always wanted to have a, Old teacher be my friend, but they, they all feel like they're a thousand years old. Okay, so you're friends with her now. We'll call her Jen. We'll forgive us. Yes. Right. No, okay. that's a, no, she'll Tell love. me about Jen. Jen 
was so many things to me at once. Um, she very quickly recognized that I was very smart, but very lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the worst as a te- as a one time <laughs> teacher, one of the most frustrating kinds of students. But yeah, so what did she do? How'd she help you out? You know, she she in, was invested in me in a few different ways. You know, she um, was another person who gave me books. Um, she gave me the book To Kill a Mockingbird. And it was the first time I had read it. And on the last page, she'd underlined her favorite line. And, you know, it was, and I, I felt connected to her uh, very quickly and almost instantly, even when I was, you know, disappointing her and pissing her off and being angry with her because, you know, really being angry with her because I was disappointed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but she, she was something that I had never experienced before. She was a young professional woman who drove herself around the country to concerts, mm. who owned her own home and lived alone um, who had a boyfriend and then didn't have a boyfriend and it didn't wreck her or ruin her. <laughs> right. Yes. And, you know, she had a diamond ring that she wore on her right ring finger, mm. you know, and just her she, ring. That's just her ring. Yeah. It yeah. was just hers, you know, and, you know, a ring that actually, um, what, when she met someone, eventually, after, this was when I was in college, um, but when she did meet someone and was getting married and was going to be moving or whatever, she gave me that ring that she used to wear on her right hand and, you know, said, you don't ever have to be with someone because you want a ring. Mm. You don't ever have to be with someone because you want a diamond. You already have one. Um, Man. Yeah, she was amazing. She was very fashionable. And this was a a time in my life where I really loved fashion and um, high fashion. It wasn't necessarily that I wanted, you know, um, very trendy things that my friends were wearing. Um, I was more of like, a, you know, I loved Oscar de la Renta. Mm. I loved Christian Dior. You know, these were things. And, and I loved him more for like the artistry of it. Mm-hmm. And she got that. And she would give me her old Vogue magazines. And she, you know, was just... She was so smart. She is so smart. And, you know, the way she experiences books is the same way that I have, which is, you know, every book becomes a little piece of you. Mm -hmm. Like there's like there's there's so much in these books. There's so much information and it invokes so much so much emotion, you know, and you have a very emotional experience with the book. And it's not just about, you know, what you can retain. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, something about- they, do, they do such a bad job. I'm sorry, I'm going to rant about teaching. No, that's you, know, okay. you, you know, you know, you just said it, but they do such a bad job when we're kids with books in school, like tapping into that that we're having feelings right. about them. You know, instead it's like, what happened? It's like, really? That's what we're we're going to talk about? What <laughs> happened? I mean, give me a give me a break. yes. Well, it sounds like she was like um, she was a kind of future self that seemed pleasurable to be possibly like maybe absolutely one way of being in the world that looks awesome and um you know has synthesized a lot of things you were interested in a really positive um, absolutely and she seemed happy i assume that she seemed thrilled with her life and yeah i mean 
I mean, actually, you know, that was another thing that was really, really great about her being my teacher was that she didn't pretend to be happy. Oh, oh, I see. All the time. Oh, that's, that's even more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She, you know, if she was having a bad day, you know, like it wasn't like she stopped teaching. It wasn't like she broke down. It wasn't like she was like just angry with everyone. But it was very, you know, hey, guys, I'm having a bad day. Mm. She wasn't, she wasn't adult bot 3000, which is sort of the same every day and yes. see anything about her. Wow. Yes. And it, 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 I think she was the first time that I saw a very realistic look at someone who craved independence, who also craved um, love and acceptance and, you know, just sort of lived her life in a way that was consistent with her values and who she wanted to be in the world and who she wanted to be mm. in the world. And it was, I mean, she was and is everything. I, I talk to her um, quite often now. She called me uh, right before the school year started because she she was able to go to a bookstore and um, get a bunch of books for her class for free. And she called me and said, hey, I'm walking through this bookstore right now. What book should I be oh, getting? Oh, that's the best. That's so great. Yeah. That's, it was, do, you, do you mind? What did you recommend her? she get? Oh, so many books. Let's just um, do, do, give us a couple of hits. We got to move on with your biography. Yeah. I have to stop and ask here. <laughs> um, one of the books that I've read recently that I absolutely love is um, Sarah Farazin's If You Could Be Mine. Mm. Um, Rainbow Rowell's Eleanor and Park. Mm-hmm is a fantastic book. Um, she also, I mean, she teaches kids all, like, I mean, actually she teaches students up to like 21 years oh, of right, age. Oh, like, right, right. So you're recommending books for like the whole range of her students. Yes, right? so for a whole for, range. Gotcha. Um, I also recommended Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist. Mm-hmm. I rec- I recommended Daniel, Daniel Jose Older's um, Salsa Nocturna. I want to read that. I haven't got around. It's really gorgeous. He has a new book coming out in the spring, I think. He does, Half Resurrection Blues. Mm -hmm. It's going to be amazing. He's a brilliant writer. Um, And also Katie Coyle's Vivian Apple at the End of the World. I've heard about that book. What is that about? Vivian Apple at the End of the World is um, kind of about the rapture, but it's it's not in the way you think. Like This is not left behind. Mm, It's, um, It's very girl-centered. It's very um, power-centered for um, young girls. And it's basically, in my opinion, about holding on to your own mind Mm. and about um, thoughtful interpretations of life events and of tragedies or, you know, of of great big things that happen. Um, And I think ultimately what I really love about Vivian Apple at the end of the world is that I think it's really getting at not outsourcing your thinking mm. and you so know she can remain vivian apple even at the end of the world so to speak, yes to some degree. yes yeah. yes that's what i would say but that's it's 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 really beautiful and what age group is is that have a, is that a middle grade or why i don't even YA. know YA, okay why um great all right so let's all right let's go back in the time machine we popped out just for a second because mm-hmm. my own curiosity got the better of me so jen ranking did i have that name mm-hmm. right okay yes so she was the the teacher that you mentioned how about um 
Book and, and To Kill a Mockingbird, you got from her, read it for the first time there. Mm-hmm. Any other books stick out from your high school years? Good or ill, I should say. This isn't, we don't have to do just all um, rainbows <laughs> and puppies if we want. If there's something that you hated that you had to read or stuck with you for whatever reason, we could do that too. I mean, I, I really hated A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> I. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll tell my Tale of Two Cities story second. You go first. What, why, I, why did you hate that one so much? I don't know. It's so funny because it's, it's one of those things that I. I still can't articulate. I just, I remember reading it, you know, and I've never gone, maybe if I go back now, I mm. could read it and have a different experience. But that first time was brutal. It is it long. Was so brutal. And I, and I don't know that it's just that it was long. Like I was not at a point in my life where I was, um, opposed oh, okay, to, sure, yeah. long, to longer books, but I, I just kept thinking while I was reading it, this person who like this person who wrote this book just really, really loves to just write, like to just try. Yes. Like I was like, what kind of <laughs> editing process? You know, like I was really confused, like not by the story at all, but just by how long. Yes. Everything just the took. verbiage and a lot of flourishes and embellishments. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes, well, even the first I, line is like best of times and worst of times and blood and these two floating opposites. You're like, what is yeah, happening here? In my mind, I'm like, just get to the time. Who, what are we talking about? Okay, great. It's the best. Who, who, <laughs> what? What's a? That's the opposite of Daniel Steele in that one. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I just yeah. wanted him to get to the times. Don't tell me nothing about the times before I'm at the times. Mm. Let's get there <laughs> and then start showing, you know, and um. Yeah, it was not, that was not a great experience for me. But during high school, I also, um, I shunned the classics Mm. hard. Mm. Um, As far as normally the things that you would be reading in high school, I I did not, I, I was not. I wonder why you were so primed for it in elementary. Maybe you're, you thought like you were ready for something more contemporary, even you'd sort of been there, done that to some degree. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I know that like I, every time I tried, like I wanted to love Jane Austen mm. and I wanted to love, you know, these other books because it, it seemed uh, it seemed important. And also Rory Gilmore. Was, <laughs> and I just thought, you know, I wanted to be like Rory, but I absolutely did mm. not have the experience of loving classics in um in high school. As a matter of fact, in high school was when I really went through a really, really huge, like, romance novel phase. Ah, okay. Interesting. I- I'll tell my quick Tale of Two City stories because I can't help it because that's the kind of person I am. But no, please tell uh, This was ninth grade, so freshman – this was my last year of middle school, but it would, for most people, have been their first year of freshman college uh, – freshman uh, high school. We read it aloud. And each student got a part to play to read aloud. And Mrs. Wilbur, who I loved – um, made us stand up when it, she would do the narration, but when it was dialogue time, and I had to be um, uh, uh, the Sydney Carton, right? So I'm the the hero, but I'm I also get shunned, right? Because uh, right. the the woman I forget the the lady character's name. I remember, but we had to read it the whole time. But the the other student playing my love of my life, I could not stand. <laughs> so I, it, I, my memory is it was like six years of English classes, you know, <laughs> playing that I, I was in love with this, this person I couldn't stand, who also knew that I couldn't stand her and just milked it for everything was worth. So I, and that's how I came to read it later. And it's a beautiful story and blah, blah, blah. But I have a uh, forever bitter taste in my mouth about uh, Tale of Two Cities. So you're reading romance novels, a bunch of them. Um, any particular writer? 
writers or, or books that stick out that uh, that bear a special mention? Oh yeah, um, the the writer I probably read the most in high school was a writer named Joanna Lindsay. Okay, um, and she wrote historical romance novels. Hmm. And I just devoured them. Like I would read almost like three a week or something. Like I just went through them and just (laughs) devoured. And I think I did it because the reading I was doing for my classes was um, so out of my control, like what Mm. I was reading, that when I went to like what I wanted to read, I just wanted something purely, purely entertaining. Um, the, The good thing, I guess, about it is that now I have like kind of a, a stupid good amount of knowledge about like what <laughs> what what people were called in different times and what the clothes they wear were called and I've heard other know? people who read a historical romances say, you know, if I get Victorian England on Jeopardy when I'm watching, I'm all over that. Like I know what yeah. the kings are and the, the whole situation. I've got the my dukes from my duchesses and my earls from my my uh my viscounts all straightened out. That's- yes. <laughs> Yes, no, you really do. And it's it's this weird, you know, experience where you don't even know you know these words until somebody says something yes. like or you know, you read something and then you're like, I know exactly what that is. You and know I, you know what it is, but you don't know how to say it. That's sort of the reader's yes. the, the reader's double-edged sword. Yes. Uh, for sure. I wish, you know, I read when I was in high school, I would do the same thing, not with romance, but I would do sci-fi. And it, a lot of it, I don't know that I particularly like sci-fi, but I like that, say, there were a bunch of Robert A. Heinlein books that I could just read in a row. There's just like a bunch of right. them. And I think that's one thing about romance. You find an author you like, you know, they probably have 20, 30, maybe even more books that you can just burn through. And there's something very satisfying about knowing you have a, you love this writer, but also there's like a bunch more of them which is waiting for you. That's a really good feeling. Yes. Well. Yes, I um, think that's part of it. Do you read it. that way now at all? You find a new writer that you like? Do you go read the back catalog all at once? Um, it depends, depends on yeah. – it, it just depends on the writer. A lot of um, – the problem now is that I have so many books yes. <laughs> and yeah. so many good books. Mm. You know, my life is very different now. I can definitely afford books and mm-hmm. and I do constantly. Um, I did go through like a phase in college where I couldn't afford books and that got – kind of tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I can, you know, and not only can I afford books, but because of, you know, one of the things that I do for my job is, um, interview authors and, um, sort of, you know, sometimes write a little bit about their books. You get books sent to you. I get you books get sent to me all the time and wow. they're good books, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, or they're books that I've, you know, been with, or I saw that someone was writing a book and I'm like, Ooh, that looks amazing. And now I have it. Mm. And I didn't do anything really to get it. They just sent it to me. It's too bad. You can't sort of go as a sort of a temporal ghost and whisper into 13 year old Ashley's ear. Just wait. Yes. Until you're going to be swimming in so many books. You don't even know what to do. Yes. Or, you know, 20, 20-year-old yeah, okay, sure, right. who was, you know, doing things like going to Books A Million and stealing a book, mm. reading it, and then bringing it back to Books A Million because I couldn't find it at the library, mm. but I wanted to read it. You know, like yeah. that's, I mean, it's all—it's not good. Like I was definitely stealing. Well, you brought but, it back. What do you want us to say? Yeah. <laughs> I bet you kept it in pristine condition. The kind of person who takes a I book did. to bring it back, you're going to be—you're not going to crack that spine. I guarantee you. That. No, I did keep them in pristine, con- pristine condition. But you know, that was a weird phase that I went to when I couldn't afford books, um, and I wanted them. You know, mm-hmm. um, 
And now I have an abundance and it like this, that is what makes me feel like I made it or like mm. I'm rich is how many books I have. So we're in high school, hated tale two cities. Anything yes. else to mention about high school before we, we move on to, um, to uh, the college years? Um, I would say that in high school is also when I got, um, high school was also when I wanted to write myself. I was just going to ask that. When did that start? Okay. When, how did that get started? Poetry. Mm. Um, the gateway drug for high school the ga- writers. The gateway drug for high school writers. I, I loved, loved, loved poetry. Mm-hmm. I, I'd read um, I Know Where the Caged Bird Sings, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, because of the, um, because of, you know, the content of that book and my own history with sexual assault had just wrecked me. Mm. You know, it wrecked me. And I sort of read, um, with Maya Angelou's, um, memoirs, I sort of read backwards because um, the first one I read was a book that my mother had, which I think someone had let her, lent her or whatever, called um, Heart of a Woman Mm. by Maya Angelou, which was her, something she had written um, when she was older, mm. and it was set at a at an older time in her life. And I went from that book backward into I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, mm-hmm. um, which wrecked me. And then, you know, Maya Angelou, for me, was a fairy godmother. Mm. Like, she was, she absolutely understood me. And, you know, like, we were kindred. And, you know, I went back into her poetry. And I loved her poetry. And I, you know, and it was so different from, you know, my other favorite poets like um, Edgar Allan Poe and like Charles Bukowski, you know. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to try like, you know, a lot of the poetry I've been reading up until that point had been by white men. Mm -hmm. You know, I was not familiar with Maya or Langston Hughes or Paul Lawrence Dunbar and um, or Nikki Giovanni. And I decided, you know, to just to just try. Mm-hmm. And as I did, I, I really loved I found that I really loved writing poetry um, and that a lot of the things that I had written in like little secret journals that I had um, weren't that different from mm. you know, what I'd read in memoir, um, even though memoir scared the crap out of me, you know. My mom growing up, you know, was constantly saying stuff, you know, like she would get mad or she would say something, you know, like off color. And then she would be like, you know, don't think you're going to grow up and write a book about this. Whoa. She was already worried. Yeah. Well, that's prescient. Um, yeah. She called it forth into being, maybe. I, yeah, I, think, <laughs> I think she did. I really do think she did. I think for, like before I'd ever thought of myself as someone who could be a writer or as someone um, who had a story that was worth telling, my mother, I mean, all the time used to say to me, don't think you're going to grow up and write a book about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, I mean, so she had she had romance novels and she had Maya Angelou. So she was somewhat of a reader. Do, do, do you remember anything yeah. else your mom was reading or was she a big reader? I, don't, I know she, I know she read the book Waiting to Exhale. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was, um, I, she was one of those people who like she had books mm-hmm. and I never saw her reading. Hmm. Um, and, but I knew that she had read them cause like she would talk to me about them. Like, After a you were in bed sometimes. or when you're out or maybe. Yeah. I think it was something that she, you know, it seemed, I think it was something that she just did, you know, 
it seems to me anyway, like it was like a very private thing mm. that mm. she did was reading. Maybe it's her alone um, time kind of thing. Could yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Because I can't really picture a time I've ever seen my mom sitting around reading a book. Hmm. Um, and, at yet least there they were. and yet there they were. Yeah, at least in my youth. As an adult, I've seen her, I've, you know, walked into a room with her reading a book. Um, but as a kid, no, I never saw her reading them. Um, but she did. Like, she definitely did. Um, and being smart has always been important mm-hmm. to my mother. I think she's always had some insecurities about how smart she is mm-hmm. and how capable she is. But I, I also think they're mostly unfounded. I think she's very smart and very capable. And I sometimes get really sad when I think about the fact that, you know, I, I just don't think she believed in herself very much um, and saw what was, you know, for many years, you know, even now, like very, very clear to me. Hmm. All right, college. Here we college. go. Now, I, I'm, I would, I'd lay almost everything I own that you were an English major in college. <laughs> would, I, would I have won everything I've owned in that bet? You would have owned everything right. you own. I, yeah. I own everything I own. Not, you not so much, but I have two of everything now. Um, all right, so English or creative writing, or was there even a duel there? Oh, my goodness. The thing is, is that I had seven majors. Oh, okay. Um, Welcome to the club. All together. Have- I ended on English. Okay. Did, so where did you start? I started with public relations. Okay. Um, and then went into... Wait, faculty. how did you know it, for, it as, a, as a young college student that public relations was even... Like, how did you start there? The, uh, okay, this is going to sound terrible, but there was a show on MTV um, about a group of women who... A reality show about a group of women who worked in PR in New York City. And I was like, that looks great. That doesn't sound terrible. I, I don't know what I was expecting to be terrible. That doesn't sound ter- – I mean, a lot of us, when we go to college and we pick a major, we're just sort of like picking something at random from the imagined adult world. Right. Like I started out pre-med because my dad was a doctor. I mean, that's all I yeah. – I didn't even know you could be other things, really, to some degree. So you started out PR, and that, and so that ended. That um, ended. I okay. went into um, a double major in apparel design and fashion. Oh, right, because you're into fashion. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then there was – psychology and nursing and social studies education and English education. Um, and then really, you know, like there were a couple other things in there. It was mm-hmm. really weird. And then ultimately ending on an English studies degree. I was not a creative writing okay. major, um, though most of my courses were creative writing. Mm-hmm. And um, those were, you know, as far as majors go and people hanging out, those were the people I hung out with. I was part of the writing community. Mm. Um, in my college and, you know, that was pretty much it. I also did a lot of stand-up comedy. Ah, okay, cool. Um, college for a lot of us, especially who are like fiction, poetry nerds in high school, Mm -hmm. um, is the first time like we encounter a nonfiction book that rocks our world. Was there any nonfiction that you read in college? You remember like, oh, this is a thing that is real that I need to know about or change the way I think. Anything there? Oh my goodness, yes. There was the book. Joanne Beard's Boys of My Youth. Mm, I have heard of Joanne Beard, but I don't know that book, I have to say. What's it about? Boys of My Youth is a um, collection of essays. And they are really, I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to explain them other than they are about being a woman in the world. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about them. Okay. You, know, being, now you don't have to say more. That's, that's enough. Yeah. Sure. Um, but it was my, I took a nonfiction writing class, ah. um, having been emboldened, um, 
Oh, was that so like was the beard a book you read for class or outside of yes, class? Yes, it, no, was, it was a class. book I read for class. Um, and it, it, I, it changed the trajectory of my life from that mm. point. Um, and which is crazy to think about because I just met Joanne Beard. Um, so I did. And it was. Did you I mean, tell her? Did you tell her? I did. Okay. I definitely did. I'm one of those people. Oh, you don't I, mind. See, I would be so shy. No. I'd be a disaster. No, with authors, I had, well, I was introduced, like someone um, said, oh, this is Ashley Ford. Ashley, this is my friend, Joanne Beard. And I like, just, I shut it down. My <laughs> eyes went wide. I like put my hand out in front of myself, like a very, like, excuse me. <laughs> and then I was like, oh my God, like the, per- and the person I was with, my friend, uh, my friend and editor, Saeed Jones, um, who also had a brilliant book just come out called Prelude to Bruise. Um, he, he and I literally had to stop ourselves from like bowing a little. <laughs> like we felt like we, we talked about it later, how we both felt like we were going to bow. You're going to just genuflect right there on the spot. It was just going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the book was just, it, it was life altering. It was telling stories in a way that were fascinating captivating, beautiful. And it was telling like, just like really these very everyday stories, Mm. you know, um, one of them, you know, some of them are not everyday, you know, or like, or even if there was something very sensational within the story, you know, you were already in it and you were already committed before you even found out what the sensational thing was about this essay. Um, her essay, the fourth state of matter Every essay I write is trying to get closer mm. to being something like that. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to go find that for, for myself, selfishly. Fourth state of matter. Okay, great. All right, so that's Joanne Beard. Um, boys, I have boys of my youth. Yes, boys of my youth. Okay, Joanne, Joanne Beard. Uh, any other nonfiction you want to mention? Um. Hmm. No is a perfectly acceptable answer. We got a lot. <laughs> we're, we're not even out of college yet. I know. I'm like, <laughs> so I'm thinking about it really hard. I think Joe, I think that That's the was one. like, okay, we that was there. the book there yeah, all right. of college. Um, so you made it all the way through English studies and did you have to, I think I had to choose like, like a specialization when I was an undergrad English major. Like I think I had to be, you could either be like English before 1500, which there was like one dude ever that picked that. And then, <laughs> and then you, like most of us were just, you know, regular Americanists. Um, was there a particular era you studied or particular mm-hmm. classes you focused on when you were studying English? Um, I, I, I mean, really, I just focused on, um, I took one poetry class. Okay. Um, so and you're then still I, writing poetry at this point or just not doing it? Yeah, at this point in high yeah. school, a little. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm realizing very quickly that poetry is not my strong mm. suit. Um, but I really focused on uh, fiction and nonfiction. Like those were just my two big focuses. No um, definitive area. Yeah, okay. Really. Really the right way to do an undergrad English major, I think. And um, my, my, last, my last semester, I took a novel writing course. Mm. Um, and which is where my, the book that um, I, I just finished like two weeks ago, mm. that's where that started. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um. So that started, started one, you know, I, now that you say that, I think there's a reason a lot of people who end up writers start with poetry, just because it seems possible to write a poem where you're reading Tale of Two Cities. Like, I don't know how you would even start to eat this whale. I mean, that is a, whereas with a poem, it's like, maybe I could copy or do something even a little bit like this. Cause I think, 
I took one short story writing class in undergraduate just because I want to see what it was like. I never had much of a desire to be a writer, and I realized that it wasn't for me. But I did finally kind of come to the idea that it was, you know, novels and short stories weren't sort of handed down by the gods, like actual humans could do it. Um, right. I always lived in awe, like, you know, it might as well have said, um, written by Jesus Christ on the front of novels that I bought at the bookstore, checked out the library. They just seem so impossible um, to some degree. So we're through college. Now we're in to what I call the rest of your, your life. Um, and you're out there in the world doing things. So I don't know a, a better way to ask this, except that what mm-hmm. books since you've been in college have, have meant a lot to you? Wow. I know, that's, that's so um, unfair. Um, no, it's okay. It's unfair. And you, we, the blanket caveat is you probably will forget something super important and will apologize to those people that you've forgotten. But anything that sticks out is all we're really looking for. I would say um, as far as um, what I've read recently, man, there have been so many books that have blown me away. Um, so this is actually really hard. But um, Rainbow Rowell mm-hmm. wrote a book called Eleanor and Park. Um, which I don't know I've ever read a book that, um, that got being, um, in love as a young person Mm. and, um, as a person who has not been sexually active and, you know, all those things, like, I don't know that I've read a book that has has Mm. gotten that better, you know, um, as far as like those feelings and what (laughs) that feels like, um, and it's also just really, really, really gorgeously written. And it's a story that is very familiar to me um, from being younger about, you know, sort of trying to figure out yourself and being in very uncomfortable, unfavorable, sometimes dangerous or violent situations and being in love with someone who doesn't have that same experience um, and being young and feeling like, the fact that things are happening to you Mm. makes you unworthy Mm. of a certain kind of love. And the other person being utterly confused by that Mm. because, you know, they've always been well-loved or they've always felt relatively safe, you know, like especially in their homes. Mm. And um, so it was just really, really, really gorgeously done. And then there's another book um, by, you know, admittedly a very good friend of mine, um, but also a just, I mean, I was a fan before I was her friend. Mm. Um, Roxane Gay wrote the book An Untamed State. And I would say, um, and, it, you know, it's weird because she's my friend and I feel like it's, it's you know, this is always has to be taken with a grain sure. of salt. But, All but disclaimers I just, included. Right. We, we, yeah, gotcha. But the book um, came out this year, came out this year, I think. Yeah, it came out in, I believe, April, April, actually, of this year. Um, But that novel, that novel broke me apart and put me back together um, in a way that truly, um, truly no other book ever has. Mm. Um, and it's because it dealt with, um, first of all, the protagonist is a black woman. Mm-hmm. It deals with PTSD. Um, it deals with strained family, familial relations. You know, it deals with love. It deals with um, having to rely on the people that you least expected to have to rely on to help put you back mm-hmm. together when when you're just down, like when you're done, like when you think you're done. And then the people 
who ultimately end up helping you are just the last people you ever thought would be there. Um, it felt like it was, it, it was the most visible I've ever felt reading this book. It was the most vulnerable I've ever felt. And I just can't say enough amazing things about it. But I've heard yeah. nothing but great things. And the way you've described it is not exactly I've heard other people. And so I've been wait. I, I, I've been waiting for a time where I could get ripped apart and put back together to, to put it back to tr- to put it on my reader. Right. I just I I just haven't had it, and maybe I'll never be ready. And I just just you know it's kind of like um, when's the right time to go to the dentist? It's always the right time and never the right time to go um, for that. One, we'll get you out. Where I can't believe we're running out of time already. Um, you said something interesting at the beginning that I agree with. That you know that the the books you read stay with you, the residue of the experience. A lot of times, um, are there any books that you feel like that especially, you know, they're in your backpack, you know, that they're um, always sort of being carried around? Oh, definitely. I mean, of the books I've mentioned, Walk Two Moons, I mean, is always That's in my backpack. That's there. Yeah, you mentioned um, The Giver mm. is always in my backpack. Lois Lowry's Abs- Giver. Yes, absolutely always in my backpack. <laughs> um, the, the poetry mm. of Paul Lawrence Dunbar is always in my backpack. And I think other than that, um, I'm trying to think of, well, then now that's enough. Then you can switch things yeah. out, you know, so yeah. you can come and go from there. Yeah. Um, so what do you, do you have any sense of like, what gets you excited about a book these days? Like what, what will get you to read? So now you're kind of in the same position I am to some degree where kind of the whole bounty of what's available is always available to you. So how do you mm-hmm. pick what you're going to read these days? I think these days um, I'm really into whatever um, is something I feel like I like something I absolutely haven't read before. Ah, like this the is new, a, the new. Yes, yes, this is a story I have not read before. This is a form I have not read before. Um, Jacqueline Woodson's Brown Girl Dreaming um, is a form that I've never read in mm. before, um, and it's. A glorious, beautiful book, uh, but more than that, it's for me a very exciting book. I I was very excited to receive it, and I was very excited to read it. And at the end of it, I'm very excited to tell the world about it. And you know, as much as I love books, that level of excitement is not something that happens, mm. you know, very often anymore. Like I would not say every month I right. get really excited about, you know, a book, but a few times a year, mm. there is a book that absolutely, you know, piques my interest. And I wish I could buy a hundred copies and hand them out to people on the street and force them to read them. Thanks so much to Ashley for being my guest and to you for listening. You can follow her on Twitter at I smash fizzle F I Z Z L E. Links to the books and articles we talked about during the episode are available at bookriot.com slash readinglives. If you want to write in about the show with comments, questions, guest ideas, or anything else, please email me at readinglives at bookriot.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at reading Ape. Until next time, read something great.